Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 23. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your, mor- in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. <clears throat> Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord this is God's word amen thank you Susan so good morning Uh, my name is Drew Bennett I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City and we're glad to see you this morning continue to pray for our uh, middle school students, uh, they are at uh, the midwinter retreat that our denomination puts on uh, with Brandon Lutz and my wife. And so pray for my wife uh, and pray for me, who've, who's had to do life without her for the last two days. Uh, it's always hard. And so um, it's good, good to have you. We continue in a series here in the book of Romans. This this uh, magnum opus of Paul, this letter he wrote to the Christians in the capital city of the world in which he lived really is uh, the greatest treatment of his gospel in our scriptures. And we've come to chapter 6, which is a really hard part of the letter, uh, a hard, hard to understand, hard to really grasp the concepts that are here. But I want you to see the heart of the gospel as Paul lays it out here in chapter 6 is union with Christ. That's what we talked about last week up in the, those first verses at the top of the, of the, path, of the chapter. And being united to Christ means that the work Jesus has done for you becomes a work he does in you. And let me say that again. Being united to him, the argument Paul's making anyway, is that the work Jesus has done for you becomes a work he does in you. A participation, not just a belief, but a participation in his life, death, and resurrection. And so our problem is that we underestimate the power and the scope of this work that God has done. Not is doing, remember, heirs tense. Everything's in the heirs tense here. It's not this ongoing thing. It's this, it's this decisive past action of God on our behalf. This work that God has done. We tend to think of, 
of discipleship is striving towards something that's not yet true of us, yet instead Paul flips that upside down for us and says, no, really what the Christian life is about, the Christian life is about learning to become what you already are. By remembering and activating the truth that Paul puts before us here in this, in this text. Now there are three things if we wanted to chop this passage up. There are three things. So instead of going verse by verse through chapter 6, we've really taken kind of three themes, and we're going to take three weeks to look at these three, these three themes that Paul really lays out here. Three things Paul says are true of every person who's in Christ. And these really summarize the teaching of Romans 6. If you're in Christ, number one, in verse 1 he says, you have died to sin and you're now alive to God. Now that was last week. That's what we talked about last week. Second thing, if you look in verse 14, if you have a Bible open, and actually that's printed for you so you can look there. He says, we are no, if you're in Christ, then you are no longer under the law, but you're under grace. Now we're going to skip that. We're going to leave that for next week because it really goes into chapter 7. And then the third thing he says is, so you've died to sin and you're alive to God. You're no longer under the law, but under grace. The third thing is, is you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're now a slave to God or a slave to righteousness. That's verse 17. And that is our topic for today. If there was a doctrine, the doctrine would be something like this. This is, if I could summarize what we, what we learned from this passage, it would be, you can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God, but you can't be neither and you can't be both. You, can, you, you, either, you either are a slave to sin or a servant of God. You can't be neither, you can't be both. both. Look at verse 17 if you would, because that really is our focus this morning. Uh, It's just this wonderful, wonderful verse. It fills me with hope for myself and for the people that I love and the people that uh, I serve. But thanks be to God, Paul says. It's all of God, in other words. This is something only God can do. That's why we give him thanks. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's the promise of the gospel. The opposite of slavery to sin is not obedience, notice. Here's one thing we have to kind of lodge, you know, we have to, we have to log this in our, in, our, in our brain for just a minute. The, the opposite of slavery to sin is not obedience. You can be obedient and still be a slave to sin. The opposite of slavery to sin, according to this verse, is a willful, joyful obedience, an obedience from the heart. It's possible, it's possible to be obedient and not being obedient from the heart. A lot of Christians are just that. They're obedient, but their hearts aren't in it. That's not what Paul's talking about. The question in Christianity is not just, do you obey? That doesn't go far enough. The real question that we have to ask ourselves is, why? Why do you obey? What's your motivation? Where does your obedience come from? Do you obey because you have to or because you want to? See, the objection Paul anticipates is that grace destroys a person's motivation for obedience. Look at verse 15. What then are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And so these people that Paul's talking to here are saying, if you take away the law, then there's no motivation left for obedience. If you tell people God will love you no matter what you do, then what what motivation would people have to, to do good things? Won't they just run off and start to do all kinds of awful things? And Paul says, that's silly. It's silly because the law can't, the law can make you obey It can threaten, it can promise rewards for obedience, but the law can't make you love obedience. It can't change your heart, but grace can. 
And God wants just that. He doesn't just want our obedience. He wants our hearts. You can be obedient. You can give him your obedience without giving him your heart. And if you've ever parented a teenager, you know that, don't you? You, you can't give him your heart and not give him your obedience. So the miracle of the gospel is that God works in us to give us willing hearts. Hearts of flesh, the prophet Ezekiel we read, instead of stone, to walk in God's commands. That's an Old Testament passage. I mean, this isn't just a New Testament thing, by the way. It's always been Yahweh's desire for his people. Listen to the psalmist. I just, you know, Psalm 119 gets me every single time I labor through it. Listen to the, he says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I mean, it's what I long, I mean, you know, I want my children to say about me as their father, right? Oh, father, I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. (laughs) You see? I'm worthy of that, right? (laughs) That would be a gracious heart. A child should actually say that about their parent. And we should say it about our Father in heaven. Oh, how I love your law. How sweet are your words. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. See, the promise of the new covenant isn't that obedience is optional. Grace doesn't make obedience optional. Jesus makes it possible. And he makes it possible not just to obey, but to obey from the heart, to want to obey. That's the miracle of the gospel. That he can so change our hearts that we can no longer live from a have to, but now we get to live from a want to. So John writes in the New Testament, and I've not been able to get away from this this week. First uh, John 5.3 says this. says, uh, this is the love of God. This is love for God that we keep his commandments. And then he says, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's amazing to me. John says, it's not hard to obey God. See, that, that's what I'm talking about. I, I, don't always, I don't always obey, but I want to with all of my heart. That's, that's the heart cry of every single person who's experienced grace. So how do you get there? How do you get that? How do I get it? How do you get it? How do the people we love get it? That's what these verses are all about. How do we become a people who don't just obey, but who love to obey, who obey from the heart? And we're going to see three things about that theme as we work our way through this passage this morning. I want you to see first why we don't, because the passage does talk about that. But secondly, how we can love to obey God the way the psalmist says. And then lastly, what happens when we do, what happens to our lives when we become people who really do not just obey, but, but have this heart that is ready and willing for obedience. And so let's look at those three things this morning. Loving God's commands, why we don't, how we can, what happens when we do. So let's first talk about why we don't love obedience. And so look here in the text. It says that we are all born slaves to sin, verse 17. And that's why. It's that simple. That we are by nature under sin's reign. So this is language we've been talking about for a number of weeks now. It carries over from chapter 5. And so the first step is to diagnose the scope of the problem. And we see here that we need more than just forgiveness. If you're here and you're not a Christian and, and you're wondering what this whole, you know, Christianity things, we use words like salvation and saved and this sort of, what are we talking about? Well, 
a lot of times it does get reduced down to I just I have some things I've done wrong and I need somebody to tell me it's okay and that they love me anyway and that is true but what we see is that we need much more than that we need we have we have a bigger problem we not only need to be forgiven of our sins we need to be set free from sin's power we need to be wrested from sin's clutches see the problem with mankind is not that we can't seem to get our act together and we just need a little more education we need a little more time we're going to figure it out eventually Our problem is that we're not in control. We're not free. We are enslaved to the tyrants of sin and death who keep us subdued through a campaign of of condemnation and fear. That's what the text says. And these verses, I think, are particularly helpful in showing us exactly how this happens, how it is that sins enslaves. And so if you would look closely at verse 12, you'll see there, Paul says, sin makes us obey very clearly. It says um, it compels our obedience, and then he tells us how. He says it's through, this word he uses, verse 12, passions. Now, that's an important word. It's the word, if you're familiar, uh, the word epithumia. It's a Greek word for desire, or it describes the inner motivational pull towards something. You know, the Olympics just ended. Uh, are, does anybody else, maybe just me, but does anybody else just stand amazed at how... how um, just how disciplined and how rigorous these, these athletes are. I mean, have you ever wondered, wondered um, how Olympic athletes endure all the training it takes to be so good at the thing they, they do? And it's because they have a desire to win that propels them in their training. And that, that's the idea here. But our problem is, is we have a desire in us towards destructive things. And for the most part, we are controlled at this level of desire. Now, substitute the word appetite, because that might be more helpful. And it's probably something that we all can, can, under, you know, can kind of wrap our hands around a little bit more. Uh, appetite, then. If you've ever tried to change the way you eat, <clears throat> you know that you, you eat food that is you know, good for you, but you don't like it. Right? If it tastes good, it's good for you. But, I mean, if it tastes good, it's probably not good for you. If it doesn't taste good, it's probably good for you. That sort of thing, most of us, because we've been conditioned. We have appetites for things that are bad for us. And so at first, you try to change the way you eat. You, you eat food that's good for you. You don't like it. It doesn't satisfy you. Not at first, because you've developed this appetite for food that's bad for you. But if, but if you, you know, you have to change your appetite. If you don't, if you don't change your appetite, then um, if you don't experience a change in what your body craves then it might last for a little while, but typically, you'll, you, you know, you won't make it. You may, you may get there for a little while, lose a little bit of weight, feel good, but then you'll turn around three months later, you're right back where you were before, right? Anybody experience that? You know what I'm saying? We are controlled by desires, by cravings, by appetites, and no amount of willpower can outlast our desires. That's the word, that word for craving. But here's the thing is it's, it's a Greek word that combines a, a prepositional phrase at the beginning, a prefix. It's the, it's the word epi-desires. Sin controls by creating not just desires, but epi-desires, these excessive, out-of-control desires. And so you see the language of presenting yourself there in verse 16, down in verse 19. Don't present yourself to sin, present yourself to God, and so forth. It's the language of worship. 
That really is a that really is an act of worship. And so what we're being told here is that sin controls us through idolatry. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God. Don't make anything else your God. But notice, notice about that command. The first commandment says there are only two categories. You can make God your God, and if he's not your God, then you will make something else your God. There's no other alternative. You're a worshiping being. And if you don't worship the true God, you'll make something else your God and live for it and serve it. Everybody does this. Everybody lives for something, some object, some goal, some relationship. Your main source of significance and worth and security could be wealth. It could be be a spouse or friend or kids. It could be physical attractiveness. It could be independence or it could be having everybody be dependent upon you. Whatever it is, what we're told is that it's a spiritual master controlling you. You might think it's doing something for you, but you're really doing for it, and ultimately, you're enslaved. See, sin creates an overdrive, an overdesire for good things that turns those good things into ultimate things. And so these epi-desires that we have uh, for ultimate things are controlling us, and, and we, need, we need the power to be broken. Now, let me just give you one example. We could be here for a long time, but we, we just need to keep moving this morning. Uh, let's just get, take one example. If you have an epi desire for wealth or business success, let's say, uh, because the money and the winning makes you feel important and safe, then here's what happens. Then when you're confronted with God's commands, because God has a lot to say about generosity, and he has a lot to say about rest. And for the most part, you can't be generous the way God tells you to and amass the kind of wealth that people who need to have wealth to feel safe, want to amass. And you can't have the rest that God commands of us and continue to drive towards business success and experience both those things at the same time. So when you come up against this, if, you're, if you have epi desires for these things, then you won't love God. You won't love the voice of God when he says, give me all your money. You won't love it when he says, take a break. Don't work so hard. You'll resent those things because because they threaten the gods you're serving. Now think about this analogy then. Where does the moon go? It goes wherever the earth goes, right? The gravitational pull of the earth keeps the moon in its place, and that's the way sin works. There's a gravitational pull toward sin, toward idols that needs to be broken. We have to be changed then at the level of desire. We need heart surgery to come deep down into us and change us at this level of desire. And that is exactly what God is accomplishing in us through the gospel. So let's come to the second point then. How then can we come? If we don't love obedience because we're slaves to these epi-desires and these epi-emotions and we're just out of control in many ways, how is it that we can come to love to hear the voice of God commanding us to obedience? And the answer from the text is something like this, that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. Now, if you believe that, then you believe into it. And if you believe into it, then what Paul said earlier in chapter 6 is that in his death, you died too. That part of you that was enslaved to sin, as I've been describing, was crucified along with Jesus. That's verse 6. And just as he was raised, if you believe that he was raised, then you believe into it. And that means that you were raised too into newness of life, Paul says in verse 4. And so a Christian is a person then who has 
experience their own death and resurrection because they are united by faith to Jesus. And the practical result of that, as the teaching continues in the text, is that the power of sin has been broken in the life of the person who has believed into him. Look at verse 18. Having been, having been set free from sin, they have now become, here's the language, slaves of righteousness, verse 18, or slaves of obedience, verse 16, or slaves of God, verse 22. All three are used in the text. Now, it's an interesting image, isn't it? And the point is that just as there were overpowering desires driving you to sin, now, if your faith is in Jesus, if you've experienced a conversion experience, you've become a Christian, then verse 13 says, now, having been brought from death to life, there is now, the, the tide is reversed, right? The tide goes in and it comes out. There's been a change in the tidal you know, momentum of your life. Now there is this new powerful motive towards obedience, the motive that was once towards destructive patterns of behavior now are towards the very commands of God. And that's why Paul says, do we continue in sin? No way. It's impossible. Because if you're a Christian, you have a new heart. And it's the heart of flesh. In place of the heart of stone. And so just as the old heart is inclined toward evil, the new heart's inclined towards obedience from the heart. That I want to obedience and not that I have to. And that verse 16 really brings this out, and it really is something. Look there again. Paul says, you've become obedient. He says, that's your will from the heart. So there's, there's the change at the emotional, motivational core, the level of desire and love in your life. And he says, to the doctrine, and that's, that's the mind. So there's this complete change there of the, of the mind, the heart, and the will, this entire change in you to reverse the tidal flow of your life. Now, what, what exactly is the nature of the change. Well, on the one hand, you see this image of slavery here. Does it make anybody uncomfortable? Just me. Slaves to God, really? Slave, I mean, slaves? To, what does he mean by that? That's a, that's a strange image. And so you have the slaves to righteousness imagery, but it's not the same kind of slavery as slavery to sin. Paul even admits in verse 19, the analogy breaks down to some degree. So you have this image of freedom, too. That God enslaves us to himself because it's the only way that he can set us free. That our problem is we need to be free from these epi desires and these epi emotions that are driving our lives and we're just out of control. And the only way to rein us in is for, as our confession says, for Jesus our king to subdue us to himself. And so we read in John 8, if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. Now we tend to think of freedom as being able to do whatever we want, but the problem is that we want the wrong things. Do you see? Do you see how it's not good thing, a good thing to be set free, to do whatever you want, if there's something in you that's calibrated wrongly so that you're always wanting the wrong things? Real freedom is the ability to desire the right thing. So John Stott put it this way. He said, freedom from any restraint is slavery to the epi desires of our hearts. But slavery to God is real freedom. And the result of this freedom is obedience from the heart to the doctrine to which you were committed. Now, how exactly, how exactly does this happen? Well, there's so much that we could say, but in the interest of time, just two things about the head and about the heart. Because remember, our will is driven by the head, the, the truth coming into the heart, producing change in the will. So, Two things about the head and the heart. 
And first, how does this happen? The first thing is, is you have to have your head straightened by the knowledge of who you are. Your head straightened by the knowledge of who you are. I made this point last week that success in Christianity is a matter of knowing. So the doctrine's important. It's more important than feelings. What is true has to affect how you feel and not the other way around. So when your doctrine, listen, this is a cardinal principle of particularly of our branch of the, the church to say that when your doctrine and your experience don't match, you go with your doctrine. So our problem is, is, that, we, is that we allow our experience to affect the way we think about ourselves. Uh, there, it's interesting, many years after, after the Civil War ended and the 13th Amendment was in effect, uh, there were many former slaves, now free men by the law, who, who continued to live as slaves because, of course, their masters were all too ready for them to do that. Uh, they had gotten so used to the life of slavery, they kept forgetting that they were free. And that's the analogy, perhaps a less delicate illustration. This is, this is somewhat humorous, but it is, it is sad and pathetic, and I hope you see yourself because I see me here. The story is told of a horse. I can't remember where I found it, but uh, of a horse who spent his days, this is, you know, 100 years or so ago now, walking in circles uh, to power the, the mill that would grind the wheat into flour. And so all day long, this horse would be tied to the post there and had no choice would be, you know, prodded and whipped to, to go around and around and around all day long to grind the, the, fl- the wheat into flour. And on his day off, eventually, the owners would let the horse out into the pasture to roam free. You know, one day every so often he got to do this. And yet the first thing the horse would do as he went into the pasture, he would go and find a tree and spend the entire day walking around the tree. Not knowing that he was free. No rope to bind him, just the habit of living in such a way. And that, that is our problem, see. We are that silly horse. And so we need to have our heads straightened by the knowledge of who we are. Who are we? Paul says, you're dead to sin. You're alive to God. He says, you're no longer under law. You're under grace. He says, you're not a slave to sin anymore. Don't act like you are. You've been set free and have become a slave to righteousness. Get your head straight. Then the second thing he says is not only is it important that you get your head straightened by the knowledge of who you are, he says you have to have your heart softened by the heart of Jesus for you. God has to win your heart, see? And the way that happens is to see that everything with God is grace. You see the contrast in verse 23? Go all the way down to the end of the passage, this famous verse, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. What's the contrast there? It says all other masters demand that you die for them. They take. It's all wages, right? Sin, sin is wages. You have to pay. You have to sacrifice. And after all the pain and all the sacrifice, it's never enough. But then there's Jesus. Jesus is the only master who won't exploit you. He gives. He gave his life for you. And then he goes on giving grace upon grace, John says in John chapter 1. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's, that's the kind of master he is. And do you see how big his heart is for you? He doesn't make demands. He died to set you free. Let that melt your heart. His heart, his great heart for you is to melt your heart because when you get your head straight, when you get your doctrine right, and when you get your heart soft, when you see the heart of God for you, then you'll find new power, 
not only to obey God, but to delight in obeying him. And then, and then what happens? See, what happens after that? And that's, that's the last thing I want to say. And I want you to notice that all of this is God's work, but it does lead to work that is ours to do. So you have this, you have this interplay here that's, I think, confusing to people. So on the one hand, we, we're told here in chapter 6 that sin no longer reigns, that grace has come to reign, but then we're in the same breath told that we must not let sin reign. We're told we are no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness, but then we're told that we have to present ourselves to God and not to sin. And, and I think that's really why Romans 6 is so difficult. Because both these things come here. So Paul says, this is already true of you. Now you have to go out and you have to act like it's true of you until it becomes real for you. Wake up to the truth, he says. That you're not the horse walking around the tree. Do you know that? You're not the horse walking around the tree. He set you free to roam. You're free to go wherever your heart most desires because he's changing your heart to desire the things that he desires. So wake up to that truth with no rope tied around your neck. And then he says, get busy. Get busy walking in your freedom. And to do that, really what you have to do is you have to go to war. This is a call to war. It's warfare language. Look in verse 13. The word instrument there really means weapon. So let's retranslate 613 with the word weapon, because it's going to bring this out in a way that you may have missed it the first time we read it. So here's chapter 6, verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as a weapon for unrighteousness, but to God as a weapon for righteousness instead. He says you will either be a weapon in sin's hand for great evil, or you will be a weapon in God's hand for great good. Made in the image of God. You have an incredible capacity for good and for evil. There's, there's a, a lot at stake, not just for you, but for the role that you play in the lives of other people. There's a war raging. You have no choice. You have to wage war. And past generations of Christians referred to this as mortification. It's one of those words that has gone out of use that really were impoverished because of it. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will kill you. And that's what we mean by mortification, that's going to war against sin. I just want to ask, and, I want, and I'd like for you to you know, be as honest as you can. Are you at war with sin in your life? Because that's what this text is really about. And we're told that as we go to war, it, we're told both the arena and the strategy in which we do this fight. And so look. What arena are we fighting in? And you find verse 12, he talks about the mortal body and its members. So look there, verse 12. Do not let sin reign, therefore, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 13, do not present your members, those are the parts of the body, as instruments to sin. And so the body, the body's important here. In chapter 12, Paul will say, present your body as a living sacrifice to God. You know that famous verse. And so thoughtfulness about the particular ways your body is involved in sin, paying attention to bodily cravings for food and for sex, for the way that you're affected by lack of sleep or hormonal changes or just aging or youth or whatever it might be, and then having strategies for how to deal with these things. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the way, that's the way that you go, that's the arena in which you, you fight the battle. And then he says each of the members. So the parts of the body, the mind, 
right? The ears, the eyes, the mouth, the heart, tongue. Verse 13, present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, there's an old hymn uh, that says, you probably, if you've been around the church for a while, you you may remember, uh, take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. And then uh, it begins to list all the different parts of the body. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet, let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice, let me sing, always only for my king and so forth. And so here's, do you know the way you are prone to sin with the different members of your body? Pray for my kids. I've started, um, this is the way I really started to pray for my kids. I just take them, take each of them and I just go, I say, Oh, Father, I thank you for, you know, so-and-so. Please, I pray that you would make his mind sharp, that he would love you uh, with all of his mind, that he, would, that he would seek after truth. And I pray for his eyes, that you would keep his eyes from impurity and that you would cause him to gaze upon you and your glory and be transformed into your image. And I pray for his mouth, you know, that you would only cause him to speak things that would be like a fountain of life. For, do you see what I'm saying? I pray for his heart. Uh, I pray that his heart would be soft, Towards you, I pray for his hands; they would be busy uh, with the work that you've called him to. I pray for his feet; they would be swift to follow after you. And I just go. I've just—it's really changed the way I prayed for my kids to think of if there's ways that every part of our body can really lead us to evil. Then there are ways that all the parts of our body can be redeemed. You can have redeemed eyes. You can have redeemed ears. A redeemed tongue. The arena is the body. But then lastly, the strategy. And, and, and when, in talking about strategy, there's a negative and a positive, and so let's deal with the negative for just a minute. I like the parallel verse, actually. Um, in Romans 13, verse 14, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. There's that word again. To gratify its desires. The word epithumia is there again. He says, make no provision for sin. We make provision for sin. And the word there, that word provision, is the same word as, as the word providence. Providence is about the way God orders everything around us to bring about his purposes. Now, what's fascinating is Paul says we do this with sin. We think and plan and arrange beforehand for sin. And the problem is you may not even be aware that you're doing this, and and that really is the problem. So one of the things you need to do is you need to think about how you're arranging for your sin. Let me give you an example, just one. And so if you know that you struggle with jealousy and envy, and yet you're really active on social media, you're making provision for the flesh. You're, because you're strengthening the grip of jealousy and envy in your life. And what you're called to is to starve them. So get off Facebook. If it causes, if it, if it causes these things to ignite in you. We have, to, we have to starve out these epi-desires. Epi we, have, we have to do everything we can to give them no provision, to not feed them so they can be strong in our life. We need to starve them until they wither away. But then positively what you do is you weaken the desire. The problem is these desires, these epithumia, you have to weaken them by changing the habits that create the desire. So desires and loves are created and reinforced by habits. And so you can't change yourself at the level of desire, as I've already said, but you can change yourself at the level of habits. And new habits bring new desires that can eventually overpower the old desires. So you can, I've been told, I've not experienced too much of it in my life, to be honest with you. I've been told you can retrain your taste buds, that you can learn to like the taste of food that is good for you. Pray for me that that would happen in my life. 
So much so that they say, again, I've not experienced this yet, maybe in heaven, that when, that when you go back to eating the salty stuff or the sweet stuff that you used to love, it, it's too salty and it's too sweet and you no, longer, you no longer like it. You lose your appetite for that. You lose your appetite. By gaining appetite for healthy things, you lose your appetite for the things that are destroying you. It works the same way spiritually. But let's be honest, it's a hard work. It's a long work. But here's the very last thing, it's worth it. And that's, that's the very last part. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant to God. You can't be neither, you can't be both. Paul ends by contrasting down in 21, 22, and 23, the, tr- the fruit, he uses this, this analogy of fruit, he contrasts the fruit of each kind of slavery, one, we're told, leads to condemnation and death, a life of sadness and painful consequences. The other, to sanctification and eternal life, a life of freedom and purpose and joy. So choose which one you're going to serve. That's what Paul's saying. Remember that line in in, uh, Joshua? Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. I can tell you who I'm going to serve. And I hope that you would join me. I'm going to serve the one who has said, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my burden. Enslave yourself to me. Take my yoke upon you. You'll find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy, and my yoke is light. That's the promise of the gospel. Give yourself to him. Give your whole heart to him and find the freedom that you so desperately need. Let's pray together as we prepare to come to this meal together this morning. Would you just pray with me? In the quiet of the moment, just reflect for a minute. We do pray that you would do this great work in us that Paul lays out for us. Uh, We confess to you that we know all the ways that we have been enslaved to things that are destroying us, to masters who would seek to control and dominate us, who exploit and who make promises and never come through with the things they say they're going to do. And so we pray that you would set us free as you've promised that you've already done. We confess to you that we do live with such a low view of this work that you have accomplished on our behalf. And then we go out like the silly horse to walk around trees because we think ourselves bound to things that no longer have control over us. Forgive us for putting such little into uh, what you have done, what you've accomplished on our behalf. And so expand our hearts and our imaginations with the great truth of, of your coming to set us free from the dominion of sin, that Jesus, you have died and the lash was upon your back that we uh, might be free of all condemnation and fear. We are no longer slaves to fear. You have, you have taken away every motive of fear in our life because we are now your children. And so as your dearly loved children, we come before you now to say, Father, would you, would you woo and win our hearts to you? Would, you? would you cause us to have hearts that are ready to obey, to love, to hear your commands, and to follow after you because we know your great heart for us. And we know uh, that in, in subduing us to yourself, You are leading us into uh, the greatest freedom and joy that ultimately leads to eternal life. 
You've been so good to us. Forgive us for doubting your heart. And come now as we come to this table. Convince us of the truth of your great love for us that we would put ourselves in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great line. We will sing with our hearts restored. That's our hope. I got so in my head up here during communion, I forgot we were supposed to do an offering. There's grace for that too. Amen. That's a hard thing for a pastor to realize he forgot to take the offering, okay? Just, so pray for me this afternoon. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, the guys that we're going to take the offering will be at the doors as you go out, because I know some of you, uh, you plan for that. And uh, that, that is a mercy offering that goes to care for the needs of the poor and the needy and the sick and, uh, and whatever the case might be in our church and, and in our community as well. And so we don't want to miss the opportunity. We rely upon that money to be able to do really good things. So the guys will be at the door. Uh, you can drop your offering with them as you leave. I'm sorry to do that to you guys, but that's the best we can do this morning. So, uh, But the good news is, is there's grace for me, and there's grace for you. In Jesus, amen. And that, that's the promise of this word of benediction that he gives to us as we leave, that we go uh, not, not striving to earn his smile. We go uh, resting beneath his smile. We live our days in the sunshine of his love. Uh, he promises he sends us, and he promises as he sends us to not leave us or forsake us, but to go with us. And so receive these words of benediction. Uh, he is a good master. Give your heart to him. Serve him. Uh, he, will do, he will do good to you. He will take you to places of freedom and joy you've not known before. He's worthy of your trust and, and your, your, your service and your love. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.